All right, well, I just want to welcome you guys. So glad to be able to worship with you this morning. Um, if you're new to Parkview East, super glad to have you guys here. Um, and we, uh, throughout the last couple of months, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. And then we took kind of a break at Christmas time to focus on the birth of Jesus and the implications that um, God coming to earth has on us and our lives. And then for the first couple of weeks um, at the beginning of the year, we kind of set them aside to really focus on just some core commitments that we have as a people. We see it as kind of a time when as a culture we, we kind of reset and so we want to do the same thing. So the last couple of weeks, the first week if you remember, we talked about the importance of the Bible and the priority of being a people who are in God's Word, what the Bible is and how we can grow in our discipline with the Bible throughout the year. Hopefully that's something that you guys have embraced, that challenge and are finding ways to get in God's Word on a regular basis. For us, when we come together, it's what unites us. And so on Sunday mornings, it will be proclaimed, preaching Christ, all of Christ throughout all of life. That's our goal here at the church. Then last week we focused on prayer and the priority that prayer should have as a people of God as well. We are dependent on God for every area of our life. And so as a result, we should be constantly crying out for him and to him to see him do a work here. Uh, one of the things that we've also done is this week is we have, we did this last year as our first kind of year as a, as a church, as we set this week, Martin Luther King holiday, this weekend, we set it aside to specifically talk about race, racial reconciliation. The idea of talking about race um, regularly on a Sunday before Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday is something that I personally have longed to be able to do. I think one of the things that I was excited about when we started meeting as a church was when I looked at the preaching calendar, making sure that this was a priority, that, that we have a regular habit, a discipline of coming back and talking about this issue of race. And it's very fitting to do it on Dr. King's holiday. His birthday is January 15th, and that is tomorrow, and so we will celebrate that um, and talk about just what was important to him should be important to us as well. Uh, my conviction here is that, like I said, we preach all of Scripture to all of life. And if the truth is, if I were to stand up here maybe eight or so years ago and say that we're going to talk about race or talk about racism, my guess is there'd be a lot of people probably sitting in the chairs who'd say, oh, come on now, that's not an issue, right? This is 2005. That's not an issue right now. We're beyond racism. We're beyond white supremacy and race as being something we need to talk about. We've, we've moved beyond that, okay? Well, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, there might have been some of you who, who may have thought that, all right? Well, if you have eyes that can see and ears that can hear, right, you know that it is as critical of a topic for us to address as a church as it ever has been, all right? It is something that we want to talk about. The issue has been thrust to the center stage of our nation and of our culture, and we would be unfaithful to God's word if we didn't take his word and apply it to our lives and to our reality, right? Um, and if you are like me, you probably spend time throughout the week inundated with the news and the events, tragedies and conflicts that happen throughout our world and even throughout our community. Um, and as you open God's scripture, as you walk in these doors on a Sunday, what you hope, what I hope for, is that I would be able to find, be able to find some hope in a world that honestly sometimes seems so hopeless. In a world that we may be inundated with confusing messages, that as we open up God's word, as we walk through these doors on a Sunday, that where we would see confusion out there, 
we might find clarity in here. That's my hope. And as we turn to God's word, really that's what my prayer is. That although we might feel hopelessness and, and hurt and pain out there, that in here this morning we might find hope. So let's, let's do that. Let's open God's word this morning. Let's turn to his word. And my prayer for us is that he would use this word and he would write his eternal truths on our hearts. This morning, we are going to be looking at one simple verse, one powerful but simple verse. It's Colossians 3, verse 11. If you don't have your Bibles, I would invite you. We have Bibles in the back. We can hand them out. Um, we like to not put, I, I, I'm trying not to put the words on the screen, trying to get us in our noses actually in the text. And so if you would turn with, with me to Colossians chapter 3, I'm just going to read one profound verse here. Verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray now that as we um, direct our eyes, our ears, our hearts, Lord, to your eternal word, Father, I pray that you would show us as your people, how these words should direct our lives. Lord, in a world that is sometimes difficult to navigate, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we draw near to you now, that you would provide for us clarity. Lord, that you would allow us to be able to see things in the way that you want us to see things, Father. So we ask these things in your holy and your precious name. Amen. Some years ago, uh, our family um, spent the Christmas kind of holiday in Belize. That's where my wife is from. And so uh, we had kind of this, we, we just always try to find the cheapest, as you guys do, I'm sure, when you fly. Try to get the cheapest tickets possible. And these tickets that we found had us spending an overnight at Dallas, in Dallas, on the way there and on the way back. Right? So it was about a two-week stay that we stayed there, and, and it was awesome. Anybody who's traveled with kids, you know it's exhausting. And, and usually the way home is the one where you're, you know, you, your salvation, you can really see, like, okay, like, is Christ in me? Is his spirit in me right now? Okay? Like, you can be tried, and sometimes, you know, those moments can be um, very telling as, as far as what's in just kind of comes out. Okay? So we had a long trip. We were on our way back, and we got to the airport, and we flew into Dallas, and, you know, got our bags and the taxi and all this and then and took off to the hotel we're going to spend just a few hours to sleep and then get up in the morning and come back and we had little kids right and it was it was crazy and so we get everything packed up into the bag and then and then we take off and head to the hotel we get to the hotel and and everybody's crying it's like 10 o'clock at night I'm crying it's just miserable okay we get to the hotel and we start to check in and the kids are running around at this point like I think Emery and Liana were even in diapers there is young okay and so we're trying trying to navigate everything, get to the counter to check in. And she's like, okay, just, I just need the credit card and everything. I'm like, okay, great. And so I reach for my wallet. And I'm like, my wallet? Where's my, my wallet? Oh, it's in my bag. One second. So I, I go to find my little computer bag. And like, where's my, where's my bag at? Babe, do you have, do you have my bag? You know, I don't have your bag. You had your bag. You had it on your shoulder. I'm like, I don't have my bag. We looked everywhere. And the, the guy that was, you know, just dropped us off was getting ready to leave. I stop, stop, stop. I run out there. Do you have the bag? And he's like, no, there's nothing else in here. We have everything gone. I'm like, oh my goodness, take me back to the airport. And so I jumped in the cab and just 
away back to the airport I went. And by God's grace, as we pull into the, the parking area where the departures, where the guy picked us up, I mean, this is like probably at this point, it's, it's close to midnight. It's pretty late. There's not a lot of action going on at the airport. But it was like this light was just shining down from heaven. And in, in the middle, in the middle of, the, of the parking lot was this, was this cart. And on that cart, just glowing, was my red computer bag. It had my computer in it. It had all of our passports in it. It had all of our money in it. Just right where we had left it, completely untouched. It was, um, it was literally like a miracle. It sat there for probably an hour. Nobody touched that thing. It was like God's grace, okay? My point is, you might be thinking, where are we going, Martin Luther King race? What are you talking about? My point is, in order for us and our journey to move forward, we would not be able to move forward on our journey if I wasn't ready to go back. If I wasn't ready to go back to the airport, find the bag, we would have no hope of moving forward. Martin Luther King makes a similar point in a sermon he preached at Second Baptist Church in Detroit, 1954, right before he took the pastorate in Montgomery, Alabama at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Right before he took that assignment, he preached a sermon in Detroit, and he made the exact same point, right? It wasn't really until he got to Dexter Avenue Baptist that he was really thrust into the center stage of the civil rights movement. But, but he could see the things that were happening in his nation and he was already beginning to form his theology and his worldview and to be able to wrestle through the challenging, the challenging world of how do we take God's word and apply it to the chaos, to the injustice, to the oppression that's happening around us. Because if you aren't careful, you might think that this word has no power and has nothing to say to our broken, fallen world. So he had formed his theology, and as he stood up in that pulpit, he delivered the exact same message. If we as a people have any hope of moving forward, we must first go back. The story that he told was in, Mark, or in Luke chapter 2, where, where Jesus was with, his, was with his parents, and the parents leave, and, and they're on their journey, and as they begin on their journey, they, they make a little ways, and then they start looking around, and they, they notice they, I mean, nowadays they'd be at DHS, they'd be in jail. You know what I'm saying? Like, they had left their son at the temple. And they said, okay, well, if we want to move on to Nazareth, we have to first go back to Jerusalem and rediscover and reclaim that which is so very precious to us. If we want to move forward, we have to go back. And by going back, I just want to be real clear. What I mean by going back and what he meant by going back is not let's go back to some other time in our nation where things were the way they should be because there never was such a time, okay? When he says oh, we need to go back, what he's saying is we need to go back to Scripture. We must go back and rediscover who God has made us and called us to be. And in Colossians 3.11 what we discover, the main point of this verse and the main point of this message is that as a new humanity, we are rooted in Christ and free from distinction. 
me say it one more time. As a new humanity, the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, him raising from the dead, he created a new humanity. And as a new humanity, we are to be rooted in Christ and free from distinction. That's the point that Paul is making in this letter to the Colossian church. So just three real simple points this morning. Um, First, we're going to look at the dream, okay? The dream. What is this new humanity? And then we will see that this dream is a dream that's worth dying for and that this dream, as a result, should be a dream that's also worth living for. So the first thing is, what is the new humanity? What is the dream? What is Dr. King in that message calling God's people to go back and rediscover? Well, first, I think we have to understand the context of Paul's words to this church in Colossians. In Colossae. First, he's, he's writing to the church. This is a place that Paul has not been to. He is not responsible for the planting of this church. Yet he is thankful for these people, for their faith in Christ and for the love of Christ that these people possess. And as thankful for them and as encouraged by them as Paul is, about halfway into the letter, we begin to see that Paul has some concerns. Paul has some concerns about these people and about whether or not they will be able to remain faithful to that which Christ has called them to. And and the reason why he has concerns, he reveals to us somewhere in chapter 2 that there are certain cultural pressures that this church is facing. There are certain forces from outside of the church which he fears is going to eventually make its way into the church and potentially causing God's people to abandon their faith and to leave the church. That's his fear. Now, I don't know if you have experienced a similar fear, but I will tell you those same pressures Maybe different flavors exist today in our country. This church, these people, we also throughout life will face the exact same pressures that the church at Colossae faced. Now, if you were to just think about the issue of race as a whole, I know for many people, and if you were to zoom up and look at evangelicalism in our nation today, you would see that there are lots of people right now questioning whether or not even that term evangelicalism is one that they want to claim as their own, okay? There are some major things happening in our country right now that are causing people, these are pressures, these are forces that are existing. And for some people, we've even seen them turn and leave the faith. Okay? And Paul says that is his fear. His prayer is he does not want that to happen. Okay? And so that is ultimately what he's wrestling with the church in Colossians. And what Paul is doing is he's reminding them throughout the book of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And that the result of Christ's work on the cross, the result is a new humanity. And the verse, it starts off with the word here. Here, he says, there is no Greek or Jew, Greek and Jew. Here. So what does Paul mean when he says here? Where is here? Remember, geographically, Paul is distant from these people. He is not in the same geographic proximity. Okay? So for him to say here, what, what does he mean? He's not there. Where is here? Where is here? Chapter 1, we see that here, Paul says, is where Christ is preeminent over all of creation. Here is where Christ has reconciled us to God, presenting us holy and blameless before 
Christ, before God. Chapter 2, we learn that here is where those who have received him, who are being rooted and built up in him, are established in the faith. And just before our verse in verse 11 in chapter 3, we learn that here is where you have taken off the old self, that the old self has died with Christ, and you have put on and been clothed with the new self. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So to be clear, when Paul says here, what he's talking about is the church. The church, the very work that Jesus did and accomplished on the cross was for you. It was for me. We are here. Here. So when we think about there, when Paul was writing these words, it's the same as where we are today. There is here. Here is there where Christ reigns supreme. The church, the body. He is going to describe in the next words what here should look like. This is the dream. Is it a dream, though, or is it a reality? It's a question we'll look at. What is this new humanity? Paul goes through and lists a few things. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew. There are no national cultural distinctions that should be made that divide one another. There are boundaries that may exist out there that separate us, that keep us divided, that are maybe national boundaries, cultural boundaries. In Paul's day, it was, this was kind of an, an ethnocentric people, and they saw everything as if you were either a Jew or not a Jew. And that was what they used for the term Greek. So there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no cultural or national distinctions that should divide and separate us here. Out there, those things exist, but in here, they don't. Then he says there's neither circumcised and uncircumcised. These are religious or ceremonial distinctions, maybe doctrinal positions, things that exist within God's people that have divided God's people because they haven't been able to land in the exact same place. So here there are not distinctions that we make based on God's word that should separate us as long as they are true. If we hold to God's word, that our conclusions should be the same. We shouldn't divide ourselves on maybe small pieces of doctrine. We shouldn't look and say, oh, no, that's how you do things. Well, this is how we do things. These are one people that are to be united. He says here there's neither barbarian or Scythian. This talks about the class divisions that exist in society and can sometimes, if we're not careful, make their way into the church. An easy way that I think this plays out in our community is there's maybe educated and then there's uneducated, right? In our community, that's one of the larger idols that people bow down and worship on a weekly basis is education. And Paul is saying in God's church with God's people, we don't make distinctions based on class. Absolutely not. And then the last thing he says is here, there is neither slave nor free. There are not economic or, or social distinctions that we make here in God's church. There's not a distinction between the one who writes the check at the, in the job and between the one who maybe pushes the mop on the floor. No distinction should be made between those two. No priority should be given for, to one over the other. Here there is not slave or free. 
This new humanity is to have no distinctions separating them from each other, dividing the community. All barriers are destroyed, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The very work that Jesus accomplished on the cross is what allows these walls that separate us, that we erect, that we put up, to come crashing down. And to be clear, Paul is not saying that there should be no distinctions. This is helpful. He's not saying that there should be no distinctions. What Paul is saying is that there are no distinctions. They don't even exist. And to say that there would be would be to take away from the very thing Jesus did by dying on the cross, minimizing the power of the cross. The distinctions, they have no place Paul, now I think sometimes when we maybe approach a verse like this or hear a message like that, that there are no distinctions, I think we can go a couple of different ways with that. Perhaps one is to think that our cultural heritage, that maybe what you're saying is that my cultural heritage has no value and it, it does not matter. It's not, that's not important anymore. Well, that's not the emphasis. See, when Paul says this, he's drawing contrast. There's not Greek and Jew. His emphasis is on the distinction, not necessarily the class or the culture, okay? Um, we see, if we were just go ahead in verse 9 and 10, skip up a couple verses, we would say, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, through the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the, the, the idea that we are made in God's image, um, th that would confront this idea that there are no value in the way that we are designed and made and where we're born and the language that we speak. As a result, there exists in all of us, every class, every race, every culture, things that are beautiful and, and reflective of the very image of God. And those things, Paul says, they actually add to, they contribute to the beauty of this new humanity. While in the, the new humanity, it, those that, things in our culture which are not reflective of God's nature which are not inherently good in the new humanity, those things fade away. These differences from one people to another, when, when they are brought together, they form a beautiful tapestry that is put on display for the world to see the manifold wisdom of God. It's the power of, God, of the gospel on display. Well, what does success like if we're doing this, obedience to this, what does it look like? Well, at Parkview East, I think we strive to be a people who have been personally saved by the gospel and corporately shaped by the gospel. We are, my desire, our, our heart is that we would be a transcultural people. And by transcultural, to me, so like what success doesn't look like is, let's say somebody, let's say we're doing a good job, we're connecting with people in our community, and, and this church really reflects our city. If we're doing a good job of that, success to me doesn't look like people, somebody walking in here visiting saying, oh, wow, this is a, a great community of people. There are many different types of people in this worship setting. That would be maybe multicultural. 
okay? What the gospel calls us to is transcultural. So the idea would be that somebody would walk in here and see us worshiping and they wouldn't bring a, a specific focus to the distinctions that exist between us, but they would look and they would say, wow, there is one people that, that this new humanity would transcend culture. That's what the gospel of Christ does to a people, transcends culture. Now, a couple of things, that, and the way we say this, the way that I say this, is it's important for us to remember two things. I think the first thing that's important for us to remember is that race matters. I've said these before, and I'll probably keep saying them, okay? Race matters. Race matters. Race is a social construct that is real. It exists, okay? To deny its existence or your awareness of it is honestly offensive and false. When we consider the landscape of our mission field, we cannot ignore race. We cannot do it. I think sometimes the way people will, the pendulum will swing is that people will say, make a claim like, well, I'm colorblind, right? I don't see race. I would say, you're a liar, okay? You're a liar. It ain't true. It's just not true. God's not calling us to be colorblind. Sometimes I think we put that sentiment forth in sort of an innocent sort of way. Um, it's not helpful to deny its place in history, in the history of this country or any country for that matter, is hurtful. It's damaging. And if anything, it pushes you away from the people that you're trying to be closer to by saying something like that. Um, I've just not been on a place in this earth where race doesn't play a factor, where it is not an issue. I think it's the result, the fact that it divides us is direct result of the fall, okay? I think if you struggle with that, it would be great to pick up your Bible and just to study race, do a, a theology, get a good theology of race, trace it throughout the Bible and see that it's been God's plan from the beginning to win a people to him that make up every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And if you flip to the end of your Bible in Revelation, you see that God is faithful to his word. He does it. He pulls it off. And so as we turn to his scripture this morning, I think sometimes the, the hurt, the hopelessness we feel out there and here we come and we see hope because we see that God does it. He does it. Whether you're on mission with him or not, he is faithful to his word. It will happen. He is redeeming a people to himself from all over the world. People who look like you, people who don't look like you. People who talk like you and people who don't talk like you. Okay? Race matters. I think it's also to, to remind ourselves that race isn't all that matters. To claim that it is all that matters in this world or, or that your life that at the very center of who you are, your identity is your race or your ethnicity, I think to do that is to diminish the very work of what Christ accomplished on the cross as well. Race cannot take the place of Christ in our life. And just like money or relationships or career or calling, Christ alone is to occupy the center of our heart and our identity. So we say race is not all that matters, right? If it was, we would walk in here this morning and, and the turmoil that exists out there would be present in here as well. 
We can, we can say this because as a Christian with a proper understanding of creation and of the creator, we know that there is dignity. I might say this one twice. We know that there is dignity, there is value, there is worth, there is beauty that is inherent in every human being. It does not matter where you come from. It does not matter where you live. It doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter how your hair falls on your head. It does not matter the color of your eyes. Every human, regardless of where you call home, has intrinsic, inherent value, dignity, worth, and beauty because you are made in the image of God. No matter what race, no matter what religion, no matter the nation, the degree or education, no matter your class or your position in society, every human that walks and lives and breathes on this earth has value, has worth. Paul says at the end of this verse that Christ, so that's, that's not the kind of community we're supposed to be, the kind of community that places an emphasis on the distinctions. Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Not the kind of community that makes distinctions. So what kind of community are we to be? Well, Paul tells us, he says that Christ, so the contrast is not that, okay, but this. Christ is all and in all. Christ is is all and in all. That is who we are. That is who this new humanity is. How is this new humanity formed? Well, we see that this dream, who we are, is a dream that was worth dying for. Paul tells us in verse 1 of chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ. See, when Paul talks about salvation... In Christ, he regularly, regularly uses the imagery of the old self and the new self. The former self, that which is of earthly or our flesh, is joined with Christ in his death. And as Jesus dies on the cross, so does our sinful, fleshly, earthly nature. It dies with, with Christ. It's joined with him and dies on the cross. And just as that happens, so too our new self is raised with Christ as he bursts forth out of the grave. And Paul's plea for the church, for us this morning, is that we continue to walk fully clothed in this new self. That we walk just as we are. He says this later, that you walk in step with the gospel. If you're a Christian this morning, Paul's plea for you is that you would keep in step with the gospel. That the pressures that come in from the world, the way the world says we are or should be, that those pressures stay out there. And they don't make it in here and begin to dictate how we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we talk about one another, how we learn from one another. That those things stay out there and that here we would be a people that would walk in step with the gospel. And, and if you struggle with this, the idea of building, I mean, honestly, I would just say what we need to do as a people is to build relationships, meaningful, significant relationships that go beyond tokenism with people who do not look like us. There is power there. It is putting God's work on display. 
right? So that, so that people that may not look like me, I, I don't, you know, if I have an African-American friend who's, who's here standing next to me, I don't look at them and say, this is my African-American friend or my African-American brother. If I have a Hispanic brother that's standing next to me, I don't say, this is my Hispanic brother. But I say, these are my brothers. These are my brothers. That's what, what God is calling us to. It, it, meaningful, significant relationships that go beyond tokenism, okay? And if you're not a Christian, I would say that the, the, I think that there's a part of what we're talking about, what Paul is addressing here, that I think, I think it taps into just our humanity, okay? Like, like there's parts in us that long for this regardless of our position before God. And then we see this and, and you saw the way that, that as, saw, as soon as Dr. King and the civil rights movement and, and many of those leaders began to stand up for truth and, 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 and say that, that this is not going to go on any longer, there began to be people who said, finally, somebody's doing this, let's get behind him. And it was a slow process and it took years and there was marches where there weren't many people that were there and eventually some people would join and there would be churches that would condemn them and not join them. But eventually it would tap into a part of our humanity that people would say, this is true, this is right. B but as a church, the only way it happens is through Christ. That, that's where our hope comes from. That's where our hope comes from. So I would challenge you today that when we think of conversion, I think most of us think of it as sort of an individualistic thing that happens. We kind of just get beamed up to God individualistically. But when Paul talks about it, when the New Testament writers talk about conversion, it's completely opposite. It is a corporate thing. God is after making a people for himself. God didn't just call out Moses and said, you're my dude. I'm going to, I'm going to, I got you. Right? He said, no, I'm going to use you to get my people. He was after his people. Right? That's all throughout the Bible. God is making a people for himself. We're not merely saved as individuals, but we're saved as a people. Okay? He, he, he calls us his church, his body. This new humanity was a humanity that was worth dying for. It cost Jesus his life. Early on in Dr. King's ministry and his, his work, he recognized that, that if he was going to put forth this agenda, that it was going to cost him a great deal. And we knew it cost him bombings. We knew it cost him stabbing, right? That, you know, the idea that he was stabbed and if he even sneezed, it would have punctured his aorta and he would have just drowned in his own blood, right? Before he was shot and killed. It cost him his life, cost Jesus his life. And finally, we see that this dream is a dream that is worth living for. And this new humanity, if it was worth Jesus dying for it, then it should be worth us living for. It's important to remember that we have not arrived. That it's, we would be foolish to think that, that, that the church has it figured out, that there are no distinctions that we place on people, and that we just are all living beautifully in harmony. Okay? Well, there's, the reality is there's, there's people even in, in this room this morning who, because the church hasn't figured it out, they have, the church has been the source of pain. It's been the source of hurt feelings. It's been the source, oftentimes, of oppression. It's been the source, historically sometimes, for injustice because we haven't figured it out, right? When Dr. King was in the Birmingham jail, 
there was a letter posted in the newspaper that very day, and the letter was calling, it was a call for unity, was the title of the letter. It was a call for unity. Basically saying, Dr. King, man, calm down. If you really want to see this happen, there's a right way to do things. These protests disrupting the economy, that's not the best way to do it. The best way to do it is to just go through the laws, right? There's a natural, just follow the natural way. Well, the people that wrote the letter to Dr. King were clergymen. It was eight pastors, right? And today we see the same thing. The church still struggles to figure it out. It's a constant struggle. And the reality is because we live in this already but not yet tension of the kingdom, right? God, Jesus ushered in the kingdom and is coming and we live in between two worlds. And so as a church, this is something that we need to give ourselves to, that we need to live for, that we need to work for, that we need to pray for. It it, it will be difficult. It is not easy. There will be things that you might say that you may wish you could just pull them back in real quick. You know what I'm saying? You ever been in that kind of conversation? Like it comes out and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That sounded terrible. Okay. Let me bring it back, rework it a little bit and try again. Now we can't always do that. Okay. But as a church, I think if we build meaningful relationships with one another, we allow others the opportunity to do it. Okay. So when somebody says something, it means we stand up for truth, challenge them on it. Sometimes I can, my temptation is I'm not a confrontational person. Okay. So sometimes I can be in conversations and it can be on any topic and I can just find myself, oh yeah, that's cute. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I'll walk away thinking, this guy is messed up. What is he talking about? Right. Just because I don't want to get in and never would I do that to Colin. No, never. Okay. (laughs) But, but sometimes just my personality, it's hard for me to confront people on stuff. If we want to see if we want to see our church live this out, then it's going to mean when somebody says something that's not in step with the gospel, that, that we challenge them on it. And we have significant conversations that are designed to keep one another walking in step with the gospel. That's what Paul does in every one of his letters. Every person, every church, every person he's writing to, that's his goal. He sees pressures, he sees challenges attacking the church, and he's confronting them on it. We need to be ready to do the same thing with a goal of reconciliation, with a goal of unity, because this dream was worth Jesus dying for, so it should be worth us living for. Another challenge I would have just quickly is that that we need to be sure that we are we are in a community that doesn't necessarily cater to our comforts but that allows the cross to shape our convictions what's a priority in our church is that we don't come here on a Sunday morning and expect to leave, sit here like during a message and and just always be like, yes and amen, yes and amen, yes and amen. There's times on a Sunday morning you should do that. You should be like, yes and amen, yes and amen. I wish some of you would do that a little more. Just encourage my heart. Maybe it would keep me going longer. I don't know. But but yes and amen. There should be times when, when, when the word of God is proclaimed, when you open up God's scripture, that your posture goes from yes and amen to, oof, that hurt. Oh, that hurt. Ooh, got me there. Okay? And those are, those are good reactions. Okay? Because our goal is to keep one another in step with the gospel. 
Love the church. Love the church above politics. Love the church. Love the church above race. Love the church. Jesus died for the church. He did not die for a ethnic group. Okay? Love the church above class. Love the church above education. Because Christ is, is all and Christ is in all. Love the church. Another thing I would just say is, is, is act. Be ready to speak up and to, to, to stand up and to speak out for truth. Um, constantly pointing back to scripture. Uh, tomorrow there's an opportunity even here where the community is kind of coming together. They're doing a, it's organized by some other groups in the community. It's kind of a march from starting at Faith Academy and, and going to Grant Wood. It's going to be cold. Um, this is not a, a Christian event necessarily, but it's a great opportunity, I think, to, to, to rub shoulders and, and to be with people who, who share the same value. And as Christians, we constantly want to be looking and for opportunities in our culture where values line up with, with the broader culture and see that as an opportunity to point people back to Jesus, right? And so if you want to join, it's 9 o'clock here tomorrow. It's a march. You could probably drive slowly if you're really cold, I would bet. They'll allow that, make a provision for that maybe. And then another thing, Kurt mentioned it just with the announcements, is for the next three weeks we're going to commit um, some time um, in the week to corporate prayer. Uh, Cloven talked about it last week, about the priority of prayer in the life of a Christian and the life of the church. And so we want to afford an opportunity, right? There is out there difficult things, right? And our, the, the best thing we can do to, to keep that from coming in here is to meet as God's people, join hands in prayer. And so Wednesday nights, the next three weeks, 7 o'clock here, we'll probably start primarily by praying for our church and then for our community, for our nation, and for the world. Um, there are some things that, you know, we just, we, we just need, okay? And so if you have personal things, this is an op awesome opportunity to just come and to just pray. Nothing super fancy, just prayer. Last thing I want to do is, <laughs> amen. Learning quickly, putting it into practice. Um, I want to just finish by reading this quote. Um, this is just, a, just a, a chunk taken from... If you have not read much about Dr. Martin Luther King, I would just challenge you to do so. The, the best, easiest place to start is his letter, his response to those eight clergymen from A Call to Unity, um, the, the letter from the Birmingham jail. I would, it's, you could just find that online. It's an awesome, awesome letter, and it's specifically talking about how the church should respond to the injustice of racism that exists in the nation. So I would suggest maybe starting there. Um, there are so many books. His autobiography by Claiborne Carson, I think, I can, something like that, um, is a, a very quick read. It's very powerful, um, but his autobiography just edited by um, Clay, I think I'm saying his name right. Somebody could Google it and you could figure it out, but it's kind of the autobiography. Lots and lots and lots of things that are out there. If the only thing you know is the I have a dream speech, I'll just say you're missing out. You're missing out, okay? Um, so let me just read this real quick, and then um, we're going to turn it over to some communion. So this is Dr. King's words. Um, As a young man with most of my life ahead of me, I decided early to give my life to something eternal and absolute. Not to these little gods that are here today and gone tomorrow, but to God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
I'm not going to put my ultimate faith in the little gods that can be destroyed in an atomic age, but the God who has been our help in ages past, in our hope for years to come, and our shelter in the time of a storm in our eternal home. That's the God I am putting my ultimate faith in. The God that I'm talking about this morning is the God of the universe and the God that will last through the ages. If we are to go forward this morning, we've got to go back and find that God. That is the God that demands and commands our ultimate allegiance. If we are to go forward, we must go back and rediscover these precious values that all reality hinges on moral foundations and that all reality has spiritual control. Let me pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you um, this morning that this dream doesn't need to be a dream. And it isn't a dream, Lord, that this, that, that the dream that Dr. King had, Lord, it is a reality here. Here it is. Lord, we thank you um, that you have invited us in to the family. Lord, and that we can link arms and put our arms around our hands in brothers and sisters who, who look different from us, who, who talk differently than us, who are from different parts of the world, Father. And we, we can do so, and we can call them brother. And we can call them Sister, but we thank you that, that you accomplished that. By no means have we earned that, Lord, but it is only by your grace and through our faith that it's even a possibility. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to search. Sometimes it can be easy to search and to see racism, to see injustice, to see oppression that exists um, outside of ourselves, Lord, and to call it and to claim it and to stand up against it, Lord. But the, the hard work can sometimes be digging into our hearts, into our lives, and, and seeing places in our own being that do not walk in step with your gospel. So, Lord, I pray you would afford us the opportunity as a people, that, that these people, that your people, Lord, would be just that, your people, that we would be free from distinction, that we would be rooted, built up in Christ, Lord, and that here Christ would be all and in all. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.